0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our urgent Protect Our Province COVID-19 Briefing for Alberta. This unplanned broadcast is live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. This conversation for the public is also being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Since we began these briefings, we have promised Albertans a regular panel of doctors and experts who endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta. And that is why we are here today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We're going to be looking at Alberta in depth today with some of the core members of our Alberta Protect Our Province team. Um, This last week has been plagued by ongoing divisiveness, fatigue and continuously increasing hospitalizations and capitulating rhetoric that has led many Albertans, I think, to scream into the silent void, asking, how can this be happening? And is there anything we can do about it? So that will sort of drive our conversation today, as well as what is happening in Alberta and its ties to COVID-19. As always, if you have any questions that you would like to put before the panel, please feel free to enter them into whatever streaming service you are joining us live on. Um, I will start things off by bringing up Dr. Vipond to give us an update on COVID-19 in our province today. Dr. Vipond, welcome back.
1: So, um... We might as well just get right into it. We have a lot to talk about and the numbers are only part of it. So uh, let me just go to my thread, which I just posted. Um, so when we start with the, uh, the cases per day, I, I always think it's important to have that caveat. The cases per day really don't mean anything now because uh, we're not, we're restricting our PCR testing so massively that um, it's not really, I don't think it bears any relationship to what's happening on the ground. So yeah. Um, but for the, for the record, it's two, five, three, seven yesterday. Um, positivity, which you see here on the graphic, uh, is a better measure. And I just want to show how flat it's been um, for weeks now um, and continues to be flat. Yesterday was 34.49%. Uh, and last Wednesday was 34.96%. So essentially um, the same, like it's trended down from 40 to 35%, but that's a, a very, very slow trend over time. So next graphic, um, you can see uh, how, how, uh, how high it is now compared to previous waves. It's it's really quite extraordinary. Next slide, please. So now we're getting into hospitalizations. Um, as you've heard me say many, many times, because of cons- uh, um, recurrent revisions to the numbers, you cannot trust the numbers for the last two days. So probably the, the last real number we can trust is Monday, which was up 63 cases to 1529. It was initially reported uh, on, on Tuesday as 1476. So you can see how big a, a change that is. It's been uh, like fit, a 50. And generally when I'm looking back over the revisions, sometimes the revisions from day of announcement to like when it's kind of generally finalized has been as as big a difference as almost 100 cases. So, I mean, for example, yesterday, um, uh, if you go by the numbers that were reported today, it would be minus 70 going from 1542 to uh, 1472. And that's just not real. We just got to accept that it's not real. Next slide, please. And you can see on this slide that um, looks at the entire pandemic. Uh, oh, this is ICU cases, sorry. We'll go on to the ICU cases then. We've got them backwards. ICU uh, also continues to be extremely flat. Um, yesterday was plus 6 to, uh, to 112. If you look at it, it's actually been since the 18th of June that we've been bouncing between uh, like 114 for a high and 101 for a low. Uh, and, and now we're at 112. So you can just see... Um, we're just not going anywhere. And I think it's important to point this out in the context of um, both Dr. Hinshaw's uh, Twitter account yesterday saying hospitalizations uh, look like they're dropping. And also uh, um, Premier Kenny saying we look like we've reached a peak. It doesn't look like a peak to me um, by the numbers. I can say that the rate of growth is slowing. I I, I go back a few days to see what the seven day changes and it's been slowly dropping. So we are kind of peaking, but that doesn't mean we're essentially going to start to, to drop. It means we're peaking. So, for example, when we're talking about this rate of rise, um, uh, if we go Sunday to Sunday, it was a rate of rise of 14 percent. And then um, Saturday was 17 percent. Um, uh, and then uh, Thursday, I think, was twenty point four percent. So, you know, it that rate of of growth is slowing, which is nice to see. Next slide, please. Uh, I always like to talk about the fact that uh, there's kids still getting sick. I don't like to talk about, but I think it's important that we talk about it because it is something that's been minimized by our our political leaders. So you can see that we have another uh, eight kids that have entered into the hospital and one of those into the ICU. Next slide, please. And these are our deaths. really consistently being between 13 and 15 percent uh 13 and 15 people per day being announced um and you can see that that continues today i've I've actually been pretty surprised i i thought you know with delta we were seeing some younger numbers and and we are predominantly seeing people above the age of 50 still this sporadic uh, younger person coming um, uh, into the morgue but but generally it's a lot of older people so if you just make that slide a little bigger so i can count i think there's 11 if i'm not mistaken 11 people over the age of 80. and yeah i mean uh, next slide please i i I had the the wonderful opportunity to go um, do some skating today on ghost lake and looking at the uh, the beautiful vistas and the beautiful snow and it just reminded me of of why why we stay and fight like this is this is my province this is my mother's province I acknowledge I'm a, a colonial uh, immigrant um, so I only have two generations here but still I'm tied to this land and I don't I, I want to stay and 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 fight to protect it and protect protect Albertans and and I just want to remind people. And was reminded today, uh, while I was off on my skate, that that this place is is special, and that we need to to fight. And so I'm just really happy that Protect Our Province Alberta exists, so that we can continue to provide um, unbiased, unpolitical uh, information to the public, so that they can make good decisions. Um, And I hope we're going to have an opportunity to talk about that today. So I'm going to hand it back over to Michelle, and we'll be um, going to our other guests.
0: Thank you so very much, Dr. Vipond. We will bring you back into the conversation shortly. Um, as Dr. Vipond mentioned, our current hospitalizations, um, continue to go up and their continued rise is happening at a time when the government is considering lifting the restrictions exemption program, um, But what effect will that have, I guess, is one of my big questions in terms of not just all of our health and safety, but humans that are needing hospital care for COVID-19 and other things. And so that like longer, that bigger picture effect in Alberta on our acute care system Um, as we watch those numbers continue to rise, it seems every day getting higher and higher over. Any other wave in terms of folks who are requiring acute care beds, not to mention ongoing delays, diversions to everybody's access to what was once an exceptionally beautiful, robust healthcare system that continues to be under so much strain, um, is something that. Many days, I think, keeps me up at night. (laughs) Um, So I am very, very pleased to have um, Dr. Paul Parks with us, an emergency room physician, member of Protect Our Province from the Medicine Hat Regional Hospital, as well as the president of the section of emergency medicine of the AMA, um, to take us through a more in-depth look at Alberta's current acute care capacity. Thank you so very much, Dr. Parks, for being with us today.
2: Well, thanks for having us and uh, let me uh, kind of give a brief overview. I I won't take up too much time because I want to be able to offer a discussion and questions, but, you know, I think one of the big things that's difficult right now is that we keep hearing about numbers of hospitalized patients, COVID patients, and, and getting an idea of those growing numbers and it being over 1500, being a lot higher than the other wave. Um, you know, a couple things, it, it's as bad as it was in the fourth wave, but in a different way. Thankfully, we're not stretching our ICU capacity uh, to, in the same way. So uh, that helps in a lot of ways because ICU really sick people on vents in ICU need more resources, need uh, very skilled care. And so we had to redeploy a lot. We had to cancel a ton of surgeries. Um, we had to do a lot of measures that uh, just to keep our system afloat in the fourth wave. Um, we're doing similar uh, with the fifth wave now in terms of just hospital capacity. We're struggling, uh, you know, putting people in non-traditional spaces, having to have uh, staff deal with more patients, um, but not having stretched our IC capacity the same way is a good thing in that it it's allowing us to cope. But like I said, it's just it's just things are different. And, and the other thing that's hard is we hear just numbers of COVID admitted patients, but uh, you know, we kind of forget that we also have a lot of really sick non-COVID patients uh, that we're seeing more and more that are very complex. Um, a lot of them have had de- delayed or deferred care for you know over a year or more even so their their cases are more complex and and they still need to come into the hospitals as well. So I, I just have a couple of quick slides to just give a picture. So if you can put up the first slide here, um you know so this looks kind of busy uh, it, it, this is a snapshot from 31st of april that kind of talks about uh what our our hospital capacity looks looks like in the province on the 31st and this is where it gets confusing a bit if the minister uh well it's been the premier talking about you know while the the, the number of beds we have in in the entire acute care system is it's only 91% occupancy uh you know that doesn't really paint the full picture because if you go and look at the next slide for me and this just zooms into what calgary looks like for example and and this is just if you look that number is on the 31st there was 32 beds available in any hospital in all of the calgary region and zone keep in mind those aren't just for calgary patients as well i'm down in medicine hat when someone's sick down in the south zone here and needs really a higher level of care, cardiac care like cath labs or stroke care or specialized surgeries, I have to send them to Calgary as well. But that 32, that number that you're looking at and all that wiggly waves and stuff, it's not, you know, it's very difficult because it's not real even in that at, at any given time, there's probably at least 32 patients sitting in our eMERGE departments that are either admitted or going to be admitted. Uh, on that day, so in reality, we're over 100 percent of all the beds in the entire region are taken care of. And then the other thing that's not factored in—that's a major component—that's different than whenever they're talking about historical capacity numbers from 2017 or 2015—or is—is that we're so understaffed. We're at historical levels of vacant, you know, lines of nursing, and also. Um, vacancies from day to day because of illness, because of uh, childcare, because of the million issues our healthcare workers are dealing with, and add add the fact that we're in our fifth wave, and there's so much fatigue, and there's just morale is so low, and it's it's so hard that when when we have a floor that normally would have you know just yeah, I'm just making up numbers as examples, but if they would normally have eight nurses and they only have four and they put a fan out and try to call for extra nurses, there's no one to pick up and come in. And so those four are, are struggling with more patients um, and with less help. And so just that bed capacity overall number, it's very misleading. is sure in the South zone, we have some hospitals in Medicine Hat up in Fort Mac, they have some hospital beds um, while we're at our worst. Uh, but but at the same time, Edmonton, Calgary, and um, Red Deer are, are actually functioning where most of their wards are uh, 130, 140% capacity for their wards for COVID patients. Uh, so less staffing, more patients and no give in the system. And then add on top of it, infection control issues. So you can't just put any patient on a floor uh, if they if, with other infected patients and all of the issues around uh, where patients can go, figuring out how to best protect all the patients and how to deal with both patients that have infective symptoms and non-infective symptoms. So, you know, while you're hearing messaging that, the you know, the overall numbers across the province aren't too bad, I'm kind of reminded of the analogy of, you know, just because the average depth of a lake is, is say, six feet, it doesn't mean you can walk across it. It could be one or two feet deep for a good portion of it, but you're going to drown in the middle uh, if you try to walk across it. And that's kind of what's happening now in our in our province is that, yeah, maybe it's only, you you know, uh, up to five feet or up to our necks in in Medicine Hat and Lethbridge and Fort Maxey. But meanwhile, it's it's, you know, a couple of feet over everybody's head in, in Edmonton, Calgary and Red Deer and the hospitals are literally drowning because of their staffing and capacity issues. So. Uh, I just wanted to give that little bit of a picture because if you put the next slide that this is what's happening at the exact same time that the premier is signaling everything's fine is that Red Deer is an example is canceling all surgeries but life and limb and this is on February 2nd. So this is, this is like yesterday. I mean, so we're not making this up. Why are they doing it? They would never do this unless They have staffing issues, so it can be staffing from nurses to anesthetists, but also space issues, also infection control. And and, uh, you know, all of the million issues is it, it, it doesn't it doesn't help for the premier to quote an average what our average capacity is across the province when you have some of our major centers are literally drowning. So I just you know, and I think in the end, the last thing I just want to say is that these stats are are they're not stats they're people like if you if you're talking about 140% capacity on a ward it means people are double triple bunking rooms made for only one person people are in hallways people are in closets and non-traditional spaces i'm not making this up that's what that's what some of the big hospitals are dealing with and and i'll tell you people are very frustrated and shocked when they see their loved ones are in these kind of scenarios and and routine kind of care like like grooming and bathing and personal care that would be normally done at a standard level that's much better uh, is not getting done for days or, or weeks even sometimes because the staff are, are so overworked and 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 it's a shock to patients and the families when they come into those environments. And it's a double shock when, you know, they've been watching the news and our, our, our Alberta health leaders are saying it's all fine. And yet we're not really hearing from, Dr. Vernieu and some of the AHS leaders who would absolutely be able to paint the picture of what's going on. So, uh, you know, I just give the warning that, and as Joe just mentioned, maybe maybe we're plateauing. That's awesome. Maybe the peak is getting up there and we're going to plateau and start coming down. But there's a lot of sick patients and a lot of care that we've got to get through in the next four, six, eight weeks that, you know, we're nowhere near through this pandemic right now. So I'll just hand it over to my fellow uh, colleagues here to continue. And then, of course, we can have questions and discussion.
0: Thank you so very much, Dr. Parks. Next, I would like to welcome Dr. Gasparovic into the conversation. She's been a strong advocate for COVID elimination, a strategy that has worked in many jurisdictions across the globe, but one that has been demonized in Alberta by those with the authority who could consider prioritizing it, often with the premise of protecting our acute care system. And after listening to Dr. Parks, it is obvious to me that those same authorities have chosen to reject their original premise. Historically, we have loosened mitigation um, when a wave begins its descent only to be hit again. So I'm left with the, will this time be any different? To share some information on what is happening globally and nationally, I am delighted to welcome back Dr. Gasparovic.
3: Hi, good afternoon. Thank you very, very much, Michelle. So I would like to talk a little bit about where are we now in Canada, uh, in re- like with, with the pandemic, how the future will look like and what can, what we can do that there, there is a way to stop it. That's there, there, there is a way to end it if we focus on stopping the transmission. So there's a little reality check at the beginning on the slide. So in Canada, we are in the highest COVID wave ever, uh, which kills now more than 150 Canadians every day. So it kills as many people as it did during the second wave when we didn't have when we didn't have vaccines yet. So we had very little ad- in the second wave, just starting to have them, and now the level of deaths is exact is even higher than then. Also, on the first on the first graph, you can see that even now with the wave declining in Canada, the level of daily cases is twice higher than it was in the highest point before. And also, what is very um, concerning is that the rate of decline slowed down and every time something like this was happening it means that anytime soon we can be in an in, in upswing again next slide so this so th- yeah the important thing is that this pandemic will not end just by itself after omicron wave because one the immunity both from infection and from vaccines wanes over time so soon many people will be susceptible again and two COVID spreads in high numbers all over the world. So when virus replicates, it mutates and generates new variants. So basically, this graph shows of the number of mutations over time, and we can see that it was relatively stable, the rate of increase of mutations, but now with Omicron, it's, it intensified, it sped up. And now we have reports that people who've been infected with Omicron, they got some of them already got reinfected with BA2 Omicron. So, Anytime, time, basically anytime time, some of those dots on the graph can shoot out another variant that will be more transmissible, even more immune evasive than Omicron, more deadly, uh, or fast, just transmitting faster. So basically we will be all the time on the roller coaster of waves. Next slide, please. But there is a way out of it and that's elimination strategy so basically by stopping transmission we can get out of the pandemic Uh, and here's the example how how does it work just the 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 principles uh, from actually that's illustration from nova scotia during the first year of the pandemic they were very successful in using elimination strategy when they were using it Uh, so first of all with bundle of public health measures, and now also with vaccines and airborne precautions, we can stop the transmission. So we can drive cases down to stop all community transmission to get cases to zero. And many jurisdictions achieved it over and over and over again. And once we are at zero, we can drop internal measures. So we can lift all internal measures, like for example, we can open schools again in person, we can open theatres, we can we can gather together even in large numbers because there is no COVID in community. So we are not we are at zero risk then. But we have to keep measures that prevent reinfection of the region. And those are one, preventing importation of cases from abroad and, or from other uh, jurisdictions. And that can be done by a mixture, by combination of quarantine of incoming travelers, by vax passes and tests. And two, making the population in our region, resilient to reinfection, so even if some cases from, like leaking from quarantine, will appear, they won't lead to like super fast outbreak, but to slow outbreak. And we can have this resilience to reinfection by vaccinations, by airborne precautions, and by aggressive testing. So, uh, and then once there is multiple regions that are that eliminated COVID locally, they can form a bubble for free. In which people can travel freely between in a free way between those uh, those regions. And we have to be realistic. So occasional outbreaks from imported cases will appear. They, they always did in zero-COVID regions, but they were stamped out with short enhanced local measures and brought to zero again. And what is important, so so it was successful. Uh, next slide, please. So Atlantic Canada was really successful in following elimination strategy. Uh, Till summer this year, they all four provinces followed the the strategy, and then two provinces moved to shift towards mitigation. So we can see the the colorful lines are are daily new cases per capita. So it's adjusted per population. And colorful are in Atlantic Canada and the gray one in six larger provinces that followed mitigation. So basically, Atlantic Canada focused on controlling transmission and six large provinces focused on hospitalizations and deaths. And we can see that Atlantic Canada had dramatically less uh, s- slower spread. They they had occasional outbreaks that they stamped out and which didn't leak because of quarantine, they didn't leak to other provinces, but they didn't have those dramatic destructive waves that, that we had. Next slide, please. And this graph shows um, Hospitalization adjusted per uh, per population in Atlantic Cal- Canada, colorful lines, and in the six other provinces, gray lines. So elimination strategy provinces, that is Atlantic Canada, had much better health, economy, and mobility outcomes. They have much less. They had much less deaths, dramatically less hospitalizations, and by this also less co- less long COVID and less post COVID com- complications, and better mobility. So better. Private individual freedoms there. Um, so okay, and here also, what is important, you can see that they had so they had such small spread despite their neighbors. That's, that is us and and US had uncontrolled transmission. So it is possible to to stay to be successful with elimination strategy with very, very little COVID, even though na- your neighbors have have a lot of transmission. Next slide, please. And yeah, here is for the world. Um, in the world, the regions, so New Zealand, Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, who which followed elimination strategy, so which focused focused on stopping transmission, were and still are successful. They had they had and they still have minimal spread of COVID. Next slide, please. Uh, and they also have they they don't have mountains of deaths, they don't have mountains of hospitalizations, don't have mountains of COVID and post-COVID disabilities. So they have COVID under control. And we could so basically it shows that by example of this regions, we can see that elimination is possible and is sustainable as a strategy. And we can we can we can win with with the pandemic too if we fought, but we have to focus on preventing transmission so we have to really use all the tools we have to to prevent transmission as small as, as much as possible even if we don't stop it completely we will be in much better shape when when like in in the future than in comparison to what we are doing now and we have tools we have airborne transmission control we have vaccines uh, we have isolation we have test trace and isolation measures so we have really really a lot of tools that can be used but they have to be used and for example airborne transmission control we don't use it so yeah I, i just think that we should really prevent transmission as much as we can thank you
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Gasparovic. As we move into our questions, I'm going to bring your fellow panelists back into the conversation. Um, I know Dr. Vipond had some thoughts that he wanted to reflect on after listening to the two of you, and then I will move into media and public questions.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to kind of respond to to, to both the presentations. Um, Paul was mentioning that I, I had stated that the the hospitalization growth was slowing. And so that was positive. And I I want to acknowledge that, but it's important to recognize that those hospitalizations are lagging indicator. And if you think of like hospitalizations as our best metric right now, as what's going on on the ground, policy is represented in those numbers. So the numbers and the slowing of the numbers is representative of the current policy um, uh, that we have. And a little bit on the amount of immunization that's out there and a little bit about how much natural infection there is. And I just want to reinforce that Omicron doesn't seem to provide a lot of natural immunity. So we even though it's ripping through society and we're hoping that we're going to get this uh, mythical herd immunity, it's probably not going to happen. So my fear is and I think Goja, Goja Dr. Gasparovic uh, uh, spoke to this is that um if we think of those hospitalizations as indicative of policy two weeks ago, that means that changes in policy today or tomorrow or, or Monday are going to change those hospitalizations in about two weeks. Think of it as a throttle on a on an LRT car. You push it forward, the things go up, you pull backwards and it goes down. And so um, any change to the policy is also going to change the hospitalization. And And unfortunately, we're the more we learn about, um, immunity from Omicron, the more we, we, we see it's not, a. there is no super immunity from, from infection.
2: Yeah, hundred percent. And plus if, if yes, if we take the foot off of some of the public health measures right now, of course, we're just gonna prolong the hospitalizations and that plateau for longer that we'll have, Uh, you know, longer effects going on for the next eight weeks or longer. Like, we don't know, like one of the things that is important to remember about beds too, is it's not like someone's admitted to that hospital bed for a day. And then, you know, two days later, they're out and we have that bed for someone else. So when, when our hospital's at that high level of capacity, and we keep adding more and more and more patients, that that ends up you know, adding to the cycle and adds to substandard care and and suboptimal outcomes and, and people suffer for it needlessly. So I agree.
0: To start off the question and answer period of our discussion today, I would like to welcome Adam Toy from Global Calgary into our conversation with a couple of questions. Adam, feel free to address them to whomever or everyone. Thank you very much for joining us.
4: Yeah, thanks for uh, answering some of my questions. Um, Dr. Vipond uh, touched on this a little bit, but I wonder if I might get uh, thoughts from uh, Dr. Parks about uh, effects you anticipate seeing in the hospitals that you work in directly uh, if slash when uh, public health restrictions are lifted.
2: Yeah, so I mean, the big the big quick answer is it, it, part of it is all about how signaling uh, how the our leaders signal too. So. You know, if messaging is things are fine and we don't have to worry about restrictions or the simple things like washing hands, masking, decreasing your contacts and those simple things that are helping us while we're struggling, then signaling that people change behaviors based on that, not not that they're bad or they intend to uh, do harm or get Omicron and cause troubles. It's just that they they get this this overall signal that the pandemic's fine. It's it's less of a risk and some of those behaviors change. And so then, of course. Uh, we're at, we're at like I don't know how to say it other than uh, some of the places are at breaking points there's there's just no staff there's just they're so overworked and and overcapacity and overcrowded uh in in some of the big hospitals that if you're if you're asking us to keep adding x number of new patients to the hospitals every single day uh because the cases continue it, it will hit a breaking point at some point and 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 like I said we, I worry that you know that it's not just about COVID patients. It honestly isn't. It's uh, you know that next heart attack uh, or that next stroke or the things that are very time sensitive will get delayed. And you know there there are cases of you know, when the emerge departments are really late. That chest, the de- really overcrowded. That chest pains are waiting four or five six hours to get seen for time sensitive care. You know that kind of stuff trickles out. So that's what I worry about.
1: Um, Adam, if I could just uh, follow up on that with uh, Dr. Parks. Um, The messaging that's been coming from governments across the country, including Alberta, uh, to this point through Omicron is is Omicron is mild and everyone's gonna get it. And I just wanna um, take take apart those two myths. So first of all, um, Omicron is mild. Well, right now we have the highest by far hospitalization rate uh, that we've ever had in the pandemic. And we also um, have 15 deaths per day. So maybe it's relatively mild for the individual from a hospitalization and death perspective, but from a societal perspective, because of its high transmissibility, this is a devastating disease. The second thing I wanna point out on that is that we don't know about the long-term impacts of Omicron. We know that previous variants have led to significant long COVID, somewhere around 20 to 30 percent for adults, somewhere around two to uh, 10 percent for children. And um, and we have no reason to believe that Omicron is going to be any better. It could even be worse. We don't know. And so um, so we're really missing the long COVID aspect. If you if you had to roll a dice and and two out of the six roles would end up with you with a long term disability. Would you would you roll that dice? And so we really don't want everybody to get this. And so that leads to that second myth. That uh, everyone's going to get it. There's no reason why everybody needs to get it, especially if we have um, good public health policy. Especially if we acknowledge airborne transmission. Um, I, I go and see COVID-positive patients daily in the emergency room. I have never gotten COVID. I don't. I don't plan on getting COVID, and it's because I know how to protect myself. And I think we're trying to teach Albertans how to protect themselves as well. So,
3: Dr. Gasparovic, did you want to add anything to that question? Yes. Yeah, so we. Yeah, the COVID won't stop now with Omicron, and I'd like repeat, I would like to just basically repeat uh, to what Dr. Weibund said that uh, that because it's milder on individual level, because it trans- transmits so fast, it kills much more people and harms much more people. And also it mutates very fast. Uh, we have uh, new variants popping up much faster than than previously. And there, we have already BA2 present in in, the, in in Canada. So we can get reinfected again and quite often. And the question is now, how many times one can take a reinfection on chest? So maybe today I'm okay when I'm getting infected, but can I get infected 10 more times within the next three years? Uh, we like that, we we like die eventually, and then also it's a question of equity because some people can protect themselves better and some cannot protect themselves that much because they either work in the front line or are essential workers, so they are more exposed. So they will get the reinfection much more than people who can work from home, and also people. So there is equity of having sources, having money and uh, resources and money. And there is equity of knowledge and knowledge is not equally distributed. Me and my friends, we have access to data. We have access to knowledge. We know how to protect ourselves. But many people don't, don't know that COVID is airborne and don't know that they should wear F, like N95 or N99 masks. Uh, and they don't wear them because they don't know how important it is. So they will get reinfected much more. and. I think that's the duty of public health to educate people and get this match- message as wide as possible so everybody can be protected.
2: Thank you. If I, if I can just add real quick too, I'll just echo. So I've worked a bunch of shifts in the last little while and I wanna tell you that the word and term mild, we gotta, you know, I, I on almost every shift, well, every shift in the last 10 days, I've seen COVID positive patients in the eMERGE department. And I, I wanna say that almost every shift I actually have to explain that. I have to say that I know you're reading and hearing lots about this being mild, but it, it, it's a misnomer for them because they feel terrible. In fact, that's one of the reasons that they're in the eMERGE department is they feel really bad, even though their oxygen levels are not below 91%, even though they don't necessarily need to be hospitalized. Uh, I have to sit and chat with them and say, you know, this is going to knock the heck out of you for the next 10, 12, 14 days or longer. and And they feel terrible. So, that idea of the mild piece is really just, it's a misnomer. It's just that, yes, thankfully, we aren't putting, you know, hundreds of uh, patients into the ICUs, but they all, oh, they, the people that come into emergency, me, are, they feel terrible. Sure, there's, there's some lucky people out there that get mild cold symptoms, but in uh, the emerge, they feel horrible, even if they can go home. And unfortunately, there's not a lot we can add to their care. It's kind of like this is going to be rough for a while, and, and I'm sorry that you contacted us.
4: Adam,
0: do
4: you have a second question or a follow up? Uh, Yeah, uh, second question uh, in regards to some comments made by the chief medical officer uh, earlier today, um, talking about uh, how COVID may become endemic uh, post the Omicron wave um, and after hospitalizations uh, fall. Just wondering what your thoughts are on this. I know that she's made uh, comments about COVID becoming endemic, but uh, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are uh, on that, especially given maybe some 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 recent science, uh, as far as whether or not that'll even happen with COVID.
3: Yes, so I will take this question. Uh, so endemicity has a very precise, it's a very precise term in epidemiology. And it means that basically the disease will have R around one. So it will be stable stable spread so it won't grow exponentially won't decrease exponentially it will be just at one so for example malaria is endemic in africa i don't think we want something like this also but covid is has this exponential component component in it so it either grows up or goes down exponentially I, I cannot see under what conditions it can become endemic and be under this uh the stable phase and i didn't see anybody Talking about endemicity, who would provide a model showing under what what conditions it will behave like this? So, uh, I, I don't think that it is possible that COVID will uh, become endemic. We, we will be on waves most of most of the time. So, yeah.
1: Um, if I could do a quick follow up on that, um, so flu has never achieved endemicity. It's a seasonally pandemic, right? It seasonally goes up and down. There's never an R of one. Um on the contrary, TB and malaria are both endemic. They tend to just float around in societies not really ever achieving that exponential growth or exponential decline. And yet both TB and malaria, no one would argue that that there, there shouldn't be severe efforts made to to curtail their their impacts because so they have huge impacts on the society where they're endemic. Um, what I think when they use the term endemic, what they're really, um saying and you'll hear this other term is we need to learn to live with the virus that's the other you probably heard that talking point um and i would just counterpoint that by saying we really need need to learn how to die with the virus um and as uh, dr gasbrovich has previously pointed out this is a very inequitable virus it tends to kill the elderly the infirm the immunosuppressed um, and some people just randomly, but the, the most vulnerable are those categories of people. And so what we're really saying is that we need, the, the society needs to decide that um, our freedom to not wear a mask, our freedom to not be vaccinated needs to take precedence over the safety of, of these people in our society. And and I think uh, for my training and, and for my set of values, and I hope that many Canadians share these values is, is we should fight against that. We we should be working hard to protect those that are more vulnerable vulnerable.
4: Great. So, Thanks so much.
3: Thank you. Dr. Gasparovitz. you can you can yeah add some more yet yeah, that's yeah at on endemicity. So about flu being actually non-endemic, it's yeah, it's seasonal epidemic. And we are so lucky with the flu that it has R value just like a, a bit above one, but not much, not much above one. Enough that the change in the weather, so better season, summer season, can drop it down. So it it goes down by itself and it, it temporarily eliminates itself for a season until it comes back in the next season. But with COVID, COVID's R value is so high that it won't just go down by itself and if flu if flu had higher r value r0 then and if summer wouldn't save us from it we would fight it like heck because continuous spread of flu would be devastating so we are just lucky with it that it 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 goes down just by itself because because of the season but we have no chance for such an effect with with covid with r0 or 6 or above and also endemic Actually, we have endemic uh, diseases that got eliminated in Canada and have elimination status, which is rubella, measles, and polio. They are they are endemic in the world, but they are eliminated in Canada. So, like all this endemicity uh, narrative is is very strange in this way that that we want something at high levels as as endemic. So basically, it's almost like pushing for having something akin to to malaria in Africa.
0: Dr. Parks, did you have anything that you wanted to add?
2: No, they covered that, uh, definitely, so.
0: Excellent, thank you very much for joining us, Adam. I am going to move into some of the questions that we've been getting from viewers at home, um, and then I wouldn't mind taking some time just checking in with all of you and how this number five has been feeling and sitting. Um, We're getting a lot of questions around the cyclicalness. So with that sort of understanding and building off of Dr. Gasparovic's conversation around the fact that Omicron is continuing to divide, turn into different things and you know will continue to exist unless we choose to truly suppress it and move it out of our environment um have we observed in the previous waves like a cyclicality of it so not even so much the seasonalness but we have been going in those 2 to 3 month spacings is that entirely been due to public health measures or does that have to do with the genetic makeup of the virus and how it's been changing
3: so it's what we had, we didn't have here natural waves. So this wa- waves with, when you just run wildly the, the, the epidemic, it will go, it saturate everybody who could get infected, gets infected and it goes down because it has not nobody else to infect. So actually what we had, we had exponential growth that was crushed with public health measures. So anytime we put stronger public health measures, the wave went down. But then we opened too early and we permitted the growth of new stuff. And the new waves were after second wave were always fueled by new variants. So first it was alpha, that probably just with vaccines and small public health measures, the original variant we, we could stamp out, but we let the alpha grow and that we had then we had the third wave and then again we crashed this wave with public health measures but then we loosened the measures and let and then opened for summer and let the delta grow and make new new wave and now it's basically unpredictable how big the next waves will be we see the omicron now and omicron BA2 so i don't even know when this wave really will go down whether it will be just small hump and BA2 will take over in a moment that's what, what what we can see in Denmark now they have BA2. Uh, so I think the cyclical it's not a natural cyclicality. So we cannot count off on it that okay the next wave will be in July or June or something. That they can be much more much more dense and even maybe we won't go out down from, from, from the current wave.
2: Yeah and um, the, the only thing I would just add real quick to that sorry Joe is that no well, I just while I was thinking of it is that there's this narrative out there right now that's very misleading that the, the restrictions and public health measures haven't worked, uh, which is crazy because they have. So uh, but it's very like there's there's tons of evidence that the public health measures and things like masking and, not, and vaccines and even restricting social access and, and congregation that works. Um, but, uh, so I just, I want to be very clear to people that they do work, but if we do them in, in, you know, a half-hearted measure or we take them off where, uh, you know, or there's, there's issues where you can go to big hockey games, but you can't go to, go to, you know, restaurants or things like they, we've, we've applied them in various ways, but I just want to strongly say, there's no question public health measures work and they've saved lives and they've, and they've been helpful. It's just, it's just that, that. I just don't want the discussion as people are talking about, you know, lifting the rep and the government's looking at, you know, some of these harsh and rash decisions. I I don't want people to be confused and think that there's debate that the health, the public health measures don't work.
1: And I guess I'm just going to riff on on all this and say that, man, we are so darn tired of these waves, right? Like, um, this is so hard. This is so hard. Um, It's a roller coaster. And it's literally a roller coaster. It's, oh, my God, oh, my God, we're going up, we're going up. And no, we're going down. Oh, thank God, we're going down. And oh, my gosh, it's over. And our public health officials like this is it. You guys have made it. We got the vaccines. It's over. And then, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, we're going up again. And, And this is, you know, how many times have we gone through this? And and I can understand the frustration that that i that i hear in people's voices or on twitter about these waves and how like you told us we were done and now we're not done and then you told us that all we needed to do is get double vaccinated and now you're telling us you need, we need to be triple vaccinated like why are you why is this happening um and unfortunately this is this is relatively predictable um this is predictable because of variants um and this is predictable um because we still haven't gone those extra couple measures in order to try and get it down far enough um and 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 the problem is is that when you get such a level of fatigue and frustration is there's this well that's it i give up i might as well get it right like Bring it on because, you know, I'll get it. And but then, as I mentioned earlier, we've been sold a lie that if we get it, then we're done. Right. Like we're seeing people that are getting it and then getting it again. So what we really need to do is be honest with the public. We need to deal with reality, even though it's a shitty reality. And that means that we need to suppress when we're in the midst of a heavy wave and when we can, we should be interacting in as safe a measure as possible until until such time as, as we truly see the end. And so I still see friends. I go on lots of walking meetings and uh, I do lots of uh, exercise outside. Um, I really focus on on being outside um, when I'm indoors with people, I wear a respirator mask. Um, and, you know, it's not perfect, but it's also not impossible and I think this idea that unless I can have my life in March of 2020 or February of 2020 back perfectly then it's a failure um, I don't think it's going to serve us well we need to to deal with the reality our our leaders and our public health leaders need to communicate that reality so that we don't keep feeling like Lucy um, Charlie Brown with Lucy in the football being, given the golden glove and then having it taken away at the golden ring and
2: the all the all or none feature is crazy too uh the whole uh, discussion of getting rid of the rep now you know it's going to be misleading and they're going to all of a sudden forget that you know putting hepa filters in our schools and doing other things could make a massive difference this whole all or none cycle is crazy and it's part of what's contributing to it too sorry go to that but i just like yeah, it, it's never should never be a discussion about all or none. It's like oh well, we'll just take everything away uh, and give up. It's that's crazy.
3: Yes, and we could we could just end it or get it get ourselves into much better place if the leaders had a clear goal, communicate and communicate the clear clear goal to goal to everybody, uh, but not misleading, not saying that the vaccines alone will take us out of it. Uh, because it was clear it was clear in december 2020 december 2020 that vaccines alone won't take us out alone because from math of it that that was impossible and once we had variants it was totally obvious that it's impossible it was totally obvious that we cannot protect children only by vaccinating the adults we would need to vaccinate more than 100% of adults to do that but this yeah, message so probably- was was propagated and and, and and communicated to people like this. While until we have a we would...
1: sterilizing vaccine, which is still a hope, right? Like that's got to be the, the quote unquote golden ring is a sterilizing vaccine. But until we have that sterilizing vaccine, we we need yeah, to do once we have
3: this vaccine one. plus. Mm-hmm. Totally. But vaccine plus, in some moment, we didn't need to add very much to vaccines to really stop all transmission. And it's this physical thing. Like if you have mice in your cellar, you need to kill all of them. You don't leave, leave like two, two couples and then say like, okay, I'm I'm good. And oh my God, again, my cellar is full of mice. How did it happen? Yeah, it's <laughs> biology. If you leave a little bit of something that can grow exponentially, it will grow exponentially. You just need to kill it completely. And I don't know how we lost the concept of zero. Like that materially, if, if you have zero zero something, you cannot multiply it. Anything, anything multiplied by zero is zero. So you cannot grow and, and and it worked. It it worked everywhere, like stopping transmission worked wherever it was used as a um as a policy. And and interest interestingly, in Canada or in Alberta, it wasn't on the money. We never had open, honest discussion about our strategies here. So it, it is very strange, and still, still, I, I, I don't understand, and I don't understand that.
2: And, and one, and one thing I would just add quick to that too, that is got has to change, quickly if not sooner and then later, is that we don't actually know what our public health advisors were ever advising our government. We have no idea what the chief medical officer of health has been telling the government as to what the best public health measures are for our society and for safety. All we know is the effects of what the government's decided. Same thing's happening right now. If there's all this discussion about removing the rep, we, we don't know what Dr. Henshaw Henshaw and the public health experts are advising our government. We're only going to find out what the government decides to, to do. And, and that's a failing. That's a problem. When you're talking about major public health measures that affect everybody in society, we absolutely need transparency to know what the experts are advising uh and and have it unfiltered before the political process occurs
0: if the restrictions exemption program gets dropped next week um or changed in some fashion what do you guys feel that is likely to do to this current wave um will omicron i mean i can't even figure out exactly how we judge how much is currently in the community with the lack of testing but what do you guys think we will see happening
1: Can I start? Um, Because I just did an interview with this on City TV. So I've been thinking a little bit about this. So the the restrictions and exemptions program, let's be clear, it's a vaccine passport. So they're using this Orwellian language in order to to hide the fact that it's a vaccine passport. So let's call it a a spade a spade. Um, So it's done three things. It's decreased transmission rates because we know restaurants are sources of transmission and other public spaces. Um, It's Increased the amount of vaccine uptake because um, people have immediately following the announcement that we had an increase of that. And the third thing it's done is oh, I'm going to forget now. There's three things that it's done. Oh, how embarrassing! Um, Decreased transmission. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to forget. I'll, I'll come back to it. But anyways, so right now. I think let's um, let's be honest and say that two vaccines do not substantially decrease transmission rates from person to person. And that is being correctly said by a lot of, of politicians, including our public health officer and our and our premier. So that is true. But we shouldn't just stop there. Right. So if it's not working well, do you scrap it or do you make it better? So i'll use an analogy in the 1950s and 60s we had lap belts right do you remember the seat belts and the old ford mustangs that just went across the lap and they weren't very good from an emergency doctor's perspective you know people would do these hyperflexions break all the, the bones in their back and and have uh, hit their head against the steering wheel so they, they weren't very effective but instead of saying well that that's not working let's get rid of the lap belts we actually just added a shoulder belt to it too right and now we have these shoulder lap belts which are remarkably effective. And I think there's probably umpteen examples of this in engineering um, where something it really hasn't worked up to snuff. And so we've just adapted it. So instead of scrapping the vaccine passport, what we really should do is be uh, increasing its stringency so that three vaccines are, are uh, within there. And so what that's going to do is it's going to increase uptake of that booster, which we know we're under um, providing right now or uh, the uptake is, is less than we want and it's going to decrease transmission. Um, so uh, and whatever that third thing is I forgot to <laughs> I can't remember right now um, but uh, but anyways that's that's my thought now I don't think that this government has the um, the political uh, gumption to actually to go that direction, but I think that's what what should be done and I think that's what we should be talking about as as as, as the public.
2: Yeah, I don't know if it was one of your points, but there's no question a vaccine passport still signals to people that it's a big risk out there still and that it's that mindfulness about, about the fact that it's a risk and and the mindfulness and reminder of, of doing the other precautions. So I don't know if that was one of them, but it's still no, I, a benefit.
1: I remember what the third one is now. It's actually made our restaurant system safer and so that I think that there are more people willing to go into restaurants and I fear... Um, that in this day and age, uh, you know, if they had to choose between scrapping it or adding a third vaccine, I think scrapping it will make the learned amongst the population less likely to go into a restaurant, whereas if they improve the stringency, it would make the restaurant industry more um, resilient. Ha! I knew I would get it. Thank you, Paul. You triggered it. I don't know how, but you did.
0: Dr. Gasparovic, do you have anything to add yeah. on what... Will likely happen epidemiologically in terms of spread if we are to remove um, our vaccine.
3: So when we remove any layer, the cases start either slow down less or just go up. Um, but we don't see, usually we don't see it immediately, but after one week or two weeks. And also what Dr. Park said exactly, that, that if it's a signal for people if we remove measures it's a signal for people that all is over all is good and, and people start to behave less less cautious on other level of other things as well so so that includes yeah that, then it increases the spread and on the other hand like every time we've been reaching the top of the wave or we've been going up with the wave sec wave wave two wave wave three and wave four because doctors were warning and saying that raising alarm that it's really really bad people started to behave more cautious and make a kind of like voluntary shutdown and even before the most stringent measures were announced wave already started to to bend down so it's always the psychological psychological part of it and i'm afraid with the with the with the removing of restriction exception program that that it is first step and then we will remove mask mandates and remove something else and something else and especially removing this non-invasive things because vaccines are not very invasive they don't interfere with everyday life then the spread will be higher and then we will need again much stronger invasive measures to counteract it
0: We are at our sort of towards the end, but I do want to take another couple of quick questions and then leave you guys some moments to just share some overall thoughts of the last few weeks, especially as we get closer to the weekend with ridiculously high hospitalizations, um, an unsustainable amount of daily death, and the potential of some of those layers of protection being removed. Um, We're getting a lot of questions around the cultivation of new variants and whether or not, when that happens, as community transmission continues and the virus begins to change and adapt, whether or not we are, is there a way to predict whether or not the next variants will be less deadly, more contagious, less contagious? So sort of that, um, yeah, any, any thoughts that you have on that? Or is it just at all a big unknown?
3: So the new variant will be more transmissible. So it will have transmissive advantage because if it transmits faster, it wins. Uh, so it will it can be more vaccine evasive, immune evasive, or have more intrinsic, higher intrinsic transmissibility. But whether it will be more deadly or less deadly, we don't know because it, the, the evolutionary pressure doesn't work there at, at all. Like, Because this virus transmits um, very often asymptomatically before. So I can transmit it before I develop symptoms. So in a way, the virus doesn't care what happens to me after it's transmitted. um, Unless we reach the level where half of the population is dead and so on. And because of this, the virus doesn't have any more hosts, but we don't want to get there. But in this short, short time span, it doesn't care if it gets it doesn't harm the virus to be more deadly to us so it can happen
1: the one caveat to that may be that when a when a mutation occurs to make that virus more transmissible um it it may actually make the virus less deadly but may not as uh, dr Gasparovic says it's it's not um it's not clear but Like it's not driven by that transmissibility, Um, but sometimes in evolution, if you advantage one thing, then you disadvantage another. So um, we'll have to see what happens along those lines. Um, Hope that makes sense.
0: Since we have two ER docs with us today, um, a question that we've received in the past and something that I think we will do a future briefing on. If I were to contract COVID, maybe even to the point that I needed to come visit either of you in hospital, but I wasn't at admissions point, so you were sending me home, what should I do to help myself heal? What should I be taking medication-wise? What should I be monitoring? That sort of stuff as people sort of prepare their at home care kits as we continue to move through this highly transmissible way. Uh,
2: I could go real quick because I, I' say it every single day you know simplifying it in the easy simple, simple terms. a couple things are essentially how hard it is to breathe and how staying hydrated. So so the two big reasons that we have to admit people to the hospital mostly are around how hard their breathing is and and or their oxygen levels. And the other is, especially too, hit the previous variants where they lost a lot of their smell, taste. And, and this variant now has diarrhea and nausea and vomiting. And so getting dehydrated, not being able to stay very hydrated, that then just compounds things. So what you can do at home is isolate. Uh, Tylenol Advil for that achy, the aches, the pain, lots and lots of fluids. Try to force yourself to eat a little bit and lots of rest. And you know, honestly, it's like, for the most part, if you're able to stay at home, it's like, what would your mom do for you? Get the chicken noodle soup, get the fluids, get Tylenol Advil and, and rest. And, and that's that's for you know, the people that don't need to come to hospital. The warning signs in the simplest terms of, I tell people, if you are finding where when you're sitting doing nothing at all and you're struggling to catch your breath and you're breathing really fast, uh, or you're really feeling short of breath, that, that's one of the signs you should come see us so we can check you out. Um, and then the other is lots of vomiting, diarrhea, really dehydrated, really weak. Um, and then of course, just weird things like lots of chest pains or things that are different, but for the most part, especially loved ones, I tell family too what you watch for is going to be how well they're staying hydrated, but then how hard they're working to breathe. So if they are sitting there at doing nothing at all, and you see that they're still struggling and working hard to breathe, that's when you need to see us.
1: And I'll just add to that. There are two outpatient um, therapies that are being delivered by AHS. One's a new oral antiviral called Paxlovid. uh, And the other one is uh, an IV um, monoclonal antibody called citrovimab. And they're both effective for Omicron. There's very specific criteria that we use in order to decide who can get that. You have to have a positive PCR, I think is the first thing. And then you have to have uh, either, either age criteria and being unvaccinated, or um, some type of immunosuppression um, in order to, to get those. For the general population, there's still two um, repurposed uh, outpatient medications that we can use. One's a, uh, an inhaler called budenozide, it's an inhaled steroid, and the other one's, uh, interesting enough, an antidepressant called fluvoxamine. The evidence for both of those isn't great, uh, but they're relatively cheap with relatively low side effects um, and can be given at home without without the help of uh you know an ahs staffer um so those are other options and they've been shown to to in a small number of people decrease their risk of hospitalization and maybe decrease the uh, the duration of the symptoms so talk to yeah. your doctor
2: that, <laughs> yeah talk to your doc if you can talk to your family doc because they can add that and and joe's exactly right for those patients I, I wanna really stress this again. When I see patients in the eMERGE that are are well enough that can still go home, they still feel terrible. Like they really it's not it's not mild when they have to come into eMERGE to see me to be told, well, thankfully your oxygen is good and your hydration is good and you get to go home. Uh, you're still going to feel terrible. So do these things like fluids and Tylenol, Advil, but we do add those meds too when, you, you know, like the, the inhaler and and sometimes the antidepressant will add those to try to help those patients that are not sick enough to come in, but felt really, really bad and had to come to emerge and get checked. And And the only other thing I'll say out there for patients now, 811 is very confusing. And the whole the, the discussion around getting a PCR I'll just tell you that if you're not really sick, don't go to the eMERGE to get tested because that's not an option anymore. So that's we're just testing the really sick people. So I, I just I just want to tell save people a lot of that frustration and trips um, when they're trying to find um, PCR testing because of work reasons or, or other things like that. It, it's a very problematic problem for it's tough for people out there that when they can't get rapid testing and can't get access to PCR.
0: Is there a potential as supply increases for the antiviral medications to help us turn some of the tide in terms of earlier, easier access, preventing hospitalizations?
2: Hard to say I, I, that. Go ahead, that Bob. The, biggest, the biggest thing right now is it's still restricted, limited. So they're still restricted to the criteria that Joe was saying, mainly like so are non vaccinated people um, or, or aged very elderly and, and, or lots of, you know, um, comorbidities and lots of illnesses on top of it. it. there's the orals are still restricted at this point to those people. So the first thing I would just say is, uh, it's a little bit insane for people to not get vaccinated and avoid getting ill at all to rely on a pill for once they're sick. So don't do that. So get vaccinated if you're not. Um, and then, and then, like Joe was saying, that you know, if you have lots of comorbidities uh, or you're over 55, uh, then it's worth talking to a doctor because maybe it could be released, but it's still limited release.
1: Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't actually know, so I think it's important to be able to. I don't know, but what's going to happen as supply ramps up? Uh, we'll get more scientific studies out there, and maybe there is more information out there that I just haven't read up on. Um, and and maybe there's some future world where we have a pill in our pocket and when we start to get a runny nose we, we pop it down uh and 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 deal with COVID that way uh, but we're not there yet
2: but but and also i agree fully and i just say too, keep in mind like we we use funny terminology in medicine so mild meaning you don't need to be hospitalized same thing those medications mostly prove that you don't need to get hospitalized and it decreases your severe outcomes and hospitalization and some of those markers and in fact there can be expensive treatments and so the reason government are paying for them is because it stops expensive hospitalizations Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you go from you just you're only going to have one day of symptoms and you're not going to have any long-term effects and you're going to be you'll be fine in a day or two and poof you're better it doesn't mean that and so So be cautious. I I really strongly say be cautious. It's not a magic pill that, oh, don't worry, I can get COVID and I'll just take the pill and everything's groovy. That's not what they're doing for us.
0: As we get ready to say goodbye, I would love to offer you each of the opportunity to share any remaining thoughts that you have. Maybe we'll keep going with Dr. Parks and then over to Dr. Vipond and then finish off with Dr. Gasparovic.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think I'll just say, I've been saying it a lot, but, you know, the healthcare workers, we're we're in this with everybody, we're tired, uh, fatigue's high, morale's low, Um, you know, just speaking on behalf of all my allied healthcare professionals, the nurses and respiratory therapists and just they're they're worn out so you know be be uh be patient with the ones that do show up and you know we get eight hour nine hour waits in emerge departments suck we don't want that we don't nobody wants that but the triage nurse that's out there trying to see who's the next sickest to come in isn't doing it on purpose either so just you know uh, i guess the last thing i'd say is i was very intentionally put my calvin and hobbs uh, hugging each other in the background because I can tell you, I think the world needs a bit more kindness and hugs, and uh, you know, and good good thoughts and and being kind to healthcare workers right now. Uh, are, they're worn out, so that's kind of the message I would send. Uh,
1: virtual hug to you, Paul.
3: <clears throat> um,
1: yeah, I mean, I I think if we can veer off the medical aspect of things and talk a little bit more about society. Um, I've been really disturbed by what's been going on in, in Ottawa and on the border um, with the United States. Um, I feel that uh, if it's true that the government uh, has negotiated a deal with the uh, occupiers of the border, um, that this does not bode well for our democracy. There's a reason why generally people don't pay ransoms to to terrorists. Um, and the reason is, is that once it's been proven to work, it's tends to be used again. Um, and so now that this new technique for changing policy has been adopted, um, what's to keep other attempts to change policy uh, through this mechanism? Um, uh, I, I fear that uh, uh, it could be co-opted. And, and I speak this as somebody who has protested downtown with Dr. Gasparovitz and with Michelle, but I, I, I and so I'm I'm a bit conflicted because I, I do think that there is a role for, for for freedom of expression for for protest, but I'll just point out some of the differences. Like we we were always calm, we were always uh, engaged with the police. We we stuck to public territory uh, t- terrain on, on either on the uh, the sidewalks of Calgary um, or or the the MacDougall Center. Um, and uh, and as soon as, um, you know, we we had that test, trace and isolate reversed, we, we we packed up and we went home. And so I do think there are differences. Uh, I, I think we could probably have a debate as to to um, to these techniques. But I, I feel that blocking a, a major highway until you get your way um, and getting your way is is a very dangerous precedent for our society um so yeah i I worry i'm gonna be up at night tonight thinking about that
3: yeah i think we didn't blackmail anybody that's the main difference because we've been protesting saying what we want but we didn't blockade anything and we didn't blackmail so uh yeah so i would like to say that if we can care about each other and avoid getting infected and ask our governments to stop the transmission and end the pandemic. and and then like let's learn to keep Covid at bay, basically.
0: Thank you all so very much for joining us. Um, it was great to be able to have time to have this conversation with the three of you. Um, yeah, thank you so very much. Um, with this internal feeling of ongoing governmental abandonment and the lack of fatalism that we like to promote in terms of avoiding Omicron, um, I would just like to take this moment to remind everybody not to shovel snow naked. Um, We've talked about it before, um, that it is not which layer you choose, it is how many you use. And as we continue to go through potential changes to what mitigation measures remain in place, please try to keep yourself and those you care about safe. Um, I guess building off of what Dr. Gasparovic just said, a call to action for the weekend that started last night um, was the hashtag, hashtag REP, not R-I-P or RIP, depending on which way you wanna view it, based on the letter RIP combined with the mortality rate. Um, we need to keep the protections currently in place to minimize the damage to our communities and to those we love. So if you are a social media user, please consider downloading this image that will appear on our website around 6 p.m. today and replace your profile picture with it for the weekend or longer. Oh, yeah, that's one too. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. <Chad. laughs> um, um, we we know that now is not the moment to be taking to the streets. Um It is still not safe for those large scale gatherings and rallying peacefully in person is not in the cards currently, but digitally we still can take steps to be heard before more irreparable damage is done. So if you are so inclined around 6 p.m. today, visit www.popab.ca and download the image, change it, share it, all those wonderful things. We will be back again next week As always, stay safe, Alberta. Remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask or respirator with the securest fit you have access to, and vaccines are still saving lives. Thanks again for joining us.